The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. So, Matthew 19, 3-6. And Pharisees came up to the hymn and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Um, yeah, if you don't have your Bibles open already, uh, you want to open them to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, if you're using one of those white Bibles from the back, it's on page 934. Uh, once again, like Matt said before, if you don't own a Bible, uh, if, you don't, if you didn't bring your Bible, please feel free to use that. If you don't own a Bible, then make sure um, you can, you're perfectly allowed to take one of them home. I uh, would love for you to take it home and read it. Um, yeah, we are starting a new series this morning called To Have and To Hold. It's a, it's a series on marriage, and the purpose of this series really is to be looking at what the Bible teaches us about marriage for the purpose of strengthening our marriage for the glory of God. <clears throat> God loves marriage. He created it for his, good, for, for his glory and for our good. And for that reason, since God is the creator of marriage, we want to let him teach us how marriage should be done. If we want to have a healthy and strong and warm marriage, a marriage that is filled with joy and love, we ought to let God's word lead us and guide us in our marriages. Now, I'm really conscious of the fact that in our church, we have a, a, quite a varied uh, marital history in the people in this room. Marriage does, for a lot of us, represent great joy and delight. But marriage doesn't necessarily represent that for all of us. For many of us, marriage represents deep wounds and intense heartache. Some of it is historical. Some of it is in the present and painful now. For many of us, there is great hope of what marriage might be. And for some of us, we feel like we have, we've had to give up on any kind of hope. Some of us are happily married. Some of us, are, our marriages feel mostly unhappy. Some of us are single, some of us are divorced, some of us are separated, some of us have remarried, some of us are widowed. Wherever you're at today, whatever is in your past, whatever is in your present, whatever is in your future, know this, you are loved. And we want to let the grace of Jesus Christ reign, especially in a series where we're considering some areas that are, for a lot of people, really, really painful. And so if that's you... If you start to feel that way in the series at all, if you start to feel uh, that this is actually a really difficult time, I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to hear how you're going. I'd love to pray for you. So please, by all means, don't, I hope you don't feel isolated by this. Since the Bible talks quite prolifically about marriage, there are a number of directions that we could actually take uh, for this topic. And our approach for this series specifically is really to strengthen marriages. But can I encourage you, like what Matt was saying earlier, for those of us who are not married, not to tune out in this series, because marriage, as we'll see, is there to paint a portrait of God's love for his bride, the church. Marriage is not an eternal end 
in and of itself, but is meant to point towards something far greater and grander than anything that we could ever imagine. And so my hope is that as we talk about marriage uh, in, this, in this series, you'll get a deeper sense of God's love for you. If you're here and you're not married, I would love for you to consider in this series, how can I be supporting and encouraging and praying for others who are married in our church? And so throughout this series, we want to especially hold God's grace high as we talk about marriage. It can be so easy to feel judged or less than, because life hasn't necessarily planned out the way we wanted it to. Over the next four weeks, our anchor for this series is going to be God's Word. And that means that we're going to be challenged, we're even going to be offended sometimes by God's Word. And that's a really good thing. When we are challenged and and convicted and even offended by God's Word, it's the kindness of God to us to remind us we're not God and He is. My hope above all is that God would strengthen the marriages in our church and that we would build our marriages for his glory and for our good. So let's pray and then we're going to get into this passage. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word uh, so that we can not just learn about you, but, Lord, come to know you. And, and Father, that's our our prayer this morning, is that we would come to know you, to know your heart and to be drawn to you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you have spoken these words, these eternal words which are true, and though the the tides of culture come and go, Lord, we want to anchor ourselves into your eternal truth, Father. So help us to do that this morning. Holy Spirit, challenge us where we need to be challenged. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Convict us where we need to be convicted. May we hold fast to your word, Lord. Amen. Reading this passage out again, Matthew writes from Matthew, 9 to Matthew 19, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In our house, we have a rule about Lego. We love playing Lego in our house. We love uh, sitting on the floor with our kids and playing Lego. And one of our favorite things to do is to play Lego while watching Lego Masters. And so what we'll do is we'll stream it on the Nine app on our TV. And uh, we'll sit in front of the TV and we'll play Lego and we'll be inspired by it. And our kids have come to really love Hamish Blake and it's really fun. And we sit there and we play Lego. One of the rules in our house, though, when it comes to Lego, is that uh, if if somebody in the house, uh, one of the kids especially, if they make something out of Lego, if they build something, then they are the ones who break it down. So they might make something and they might take great pride in it and and put it on their shelf or put it, you know, they might want to hold it for later. And uh, the big thing, the big rule in our house is if you see that and if you see something in their build, in their creation that you need to use for your build and your creation, you're not allowed to break it down without their permission. You're not allowed to be like a vulture and go and, and, you know, uh, just kind of grab whatever you need from it. Uh, It's very important that the person who built it is the one who breaks it down. Quite literally... 
What banjo has joined together, let no shepherd or knower separate. That's, that's the rule in our household. And the Christian view of marriage is that what God has created and instituted in marriage, no person should ever try to separate or break down. And that's not just because God's word is authoritative, but also because God's ways are better. His plans for us in marriage are for our good. They are for our flourishing. Marriage is God's idea, not man's. Marriage is not an anthropological institution. It's a theological institution. It came from him. And if we act like vultures and scavenge only the bits that we like and disregard what we don't like, then we'll miss out on the beauty of everything that God has given to us in marriage. And so as we read God's word, we're going to begin to see the massive contrast between God's design for marriage and the design for marriage that we encounter in the modern secular mindset. The biblical teaching on marriage is so different to the way we often uh, taught about marriage or the way that marriage is so often represented in the media that sometimes it feels like we are talking about two different things. And I hope that uh, we'll be able to see, especially today, that Jesus' way of life and Jesus' way of doing things is so much better than anything that you and I could ever plan or achieve. And if I can just say that again, Jesus' way of life is so much better than anything that you and I could ever plan or achieve. When we look at the way that, our, the way that marriage is presented in our modern Western culture, two major errors, amongst many other things, but two major errors uh, appear. The first is that marriage is seen as the ultimate goal of existence. We know that, and they lived happily ever after, doesn't happen until the guy gets the girl. The basic teaching is that you are not complete until you're in a romantic relationship. And so therefore, getting married is perhaps, actually is, the most important thing that you'd ever have in your life. If you're not married, there's something wrong with you. That's often what is translated to us. We'll talk about this a bit more in the weeks to come, but the Bible's response is that if you say, I'm not complete until, it doesn't matter how you finish that sentence, you're going to end up unsatisfied. If you say, I'm not complete until I get a better career or health or wealth or children or possessions or influence or being married or anything like that, if you say that, then you're going to live a life of disappointment. If you say, I'm not, uh, I'm not complete until I get that, then you'll always feel dissatisfied. You'll always feel like you're not actually complete. And then one day, if you get that thing, when you get that thing, you're going to feel utterly disappointed by it because it doesn't actually fill the eternal void that we have in our hearts. The Bible calls this idolatry, and the essence of the teaching is that only Jesus Christ can truly satisfy us. That deep and eternal yearning for satisfaction can only be satisfied by a deep and eternal Savior. The second major mistake is to think that we can basically redefine marriage however we want to do. And I'm, not, I'm talking about more a lot more than just the referendum that our country went through a few years ago to redefine marriage. If you think that you can craft and shape a marital relationship around what you want it to look like for you, then you're going to make a big mistake. You're making a big mistake and you're going to come unstuck. Marriage was created by God and not mankind. So if we want, to, if we want marriage but reject what the Creator is saying, then uh, it's kind of like buying a new car and rejecting what the manufacturer says about what kind of fuel to put in. 
So if you buy a brand new car, and let's say it's a diesel car, and you think to yourself, yeah, but my parents always use unleaded petrol. And when I come to the Bowser, there's like there's one diesel, but there's like three different types of unleaded. I, just, I like the range, I like the variety, I can choose from there. And I just think I know better than the manufacturer. I'm just going to do that. If you do that, I'm no mechanic, but if you do that, you drive down the street, your car's probably going to explode. It's not good for your car. And if it's the other way around, your car will seize. In the same way, if we want marriage, but reject the wisdom that the creator of marriage has given us, we're not giving marriage much hope. If we are importing meaning into marriage that comes from somewhere other than God, if we think that we get to write the rules about marriage, then we'll end up twisting it into something that is unrecognizable. And this is where Matthew 19 is incredibly helpful. The Pharisees came to Jesus with a test. They brought, um, they brought him a question about marriage and divorce, hoping that Jesus would fail that test so that they could isolate him from the fame and the influence that he had garnered from his teaching. But their test had a fatal flaw. They had made assumptions about marriage, what marriage was and what its purpose was, and that did not line up with what God's plan for marriage was. They were making it into something that benefited them, that suited them. And so they came to Jesus and they asked this question, is it lawful to divorce divorce one's wife for any cause? In those days, uh, divorce was a heated, was a topic of a heated debate. This was an explosive question that they asked Jesus. And there wasn't consensus amongst the Jews about how this question should be answered. The, the uh, controversy stemmed from Deuteronomy 24, where Moses permitted a man to divorce his wife if he found something indecent about her. And there were basically two schools of thought about what, that, what the words something indecent meant in Deuteronomy 24. There was, on the one hand, the more conservative school led by uh, Rabbi Shammai, which interpreted something indecent as meaning something really quite serious. That, that would make divorce a lot harder. And then there was the more liberal school held by the Rabbi Himmel, which interpreted something indecent to basically mean whatever the husband wanted it to mean. And that made divorce really quite easy and simple and straightforward. So if his wife prepared a bad meal... If she burnt the toast, if she let her hair down in public, if she spoke in an ill way towards her mother-in-law, those were all issues. And some of you, some of the ladies in here are going, well, I probably would have not sought a chance under the school of Hamel back then. Um, anything like that, any small thing, according to this particular interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, a husband could uh, divorce his wife for those means. And it was this more liberal school of Hamel that won out in Jesus' day. This is, where the converse, this is where that question was coming from. This is why they were asking that question. They wanted Jesus to pick a side. They were testing him. But their problem lay in their assumption about marriage. They assumed that the purpose of marriage was really to serve the purposes of the husband. And so they were twisting God's law about marriage, which... By the way, it only permitted divorce because of the hardness of the hearts of the Jews. It was permitted to protect the wife from becoming the property of her husband and being traded from one man to the next. These Pharisees were seeking loopholes in God's law to give them an easy out as soon as they were displeased with their wives. Can we see how similar the Pharisees' attitude towards marriage is to what we so often encounter in our world? They wanted marriage, but they wanted marriage on their terms. And Jesus' response is really quite telling. He answers their question 
with another question. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' reply tells us so much. They thought they could stand on a platform and test Jesus, but Jesus points to their platform and, actually, and says, actually, your assumptions about marriage are all wrong. You're treating marriage as if this is about you. It's on your terms. You're looking for loopholes to get out of marriage, but this is not God's design for it. And it's there in Jesus' reply that he reiterates the foundational text on marriage found in Genesis 1 and 2. And this is where we get God's design for marriage. And there's four things we're going to draw out of Jesus' reply this morning. There are other things here, uh, but for the sake of time, let's focus on these four things. The first thing about marriage that Jesus says here is that marriage is for male and female. Now, this is obviously a touchy subject. But what the Bible teaches very clearly is that God's design for marriage is that it is to be entered into by two people of the opposite sex. God has created human beings with genders. We're not just humans, but men and women with distinct and complementary bodies and roles and functions. And this complementarity of the genders that provides, is what provides God's purpose for marriage. If we follow Jesus' sentence along, he says, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Pay attention to that word, therefore. God made them male and female, therefore they became one flesh. It's this sexual and biological difference between men and women that accounts for the union that marriage brings about. Sam Albury, you might have heard of him. He's a pastor and teacher and theologian from the UK. He is also same-sex attracted and lives a life of committed and joyful celibacy. And he wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And in that book, he comments, about this, he comments about this verse, saying that the sexual difference is the reason why we have marriage. He says, it is because we are male and female that we have the phenomenon of marriage. Marriage is based on gender. Marriage would not exist without the sexual differences between men and women. In other words, the oneness that characterizes biblical marriage doesn't come primarily from feelings or commitment or even faithfulness. The oneness that characterizes biblical marriage comes from two opposite genders coming together to form that union. This is why we here at LCC Caloundra and LCC Northlakes, as unpopular as that opinion might be, we hold to what the Bible teaches on this. But you need to hear me when I say this. If same-sex attraction is something that you struggle with, then you are not outside of the grace of God. And there is so much room for you in the family of believers. Let me say that again. If same-sex attraction is something that you struggle with, then you are not outside of the reach of God's grace and there is so much room for you in the family of believers. The Bible teaches us that sin has corrupted every aspect of God's creation. Sin is the reason why we have sickness and pain and disease and death and abuse and sadness and corruption. And sin is also the cause for all kinds 
of sexual and relational brokenness. It shouldn't surprise us then that there are Christians who experience forms of same-sex attraction. It's part of the fall. And the good news is that Jesus has come to redeem humanity from sin and from the fall. This means that there is grace for every single person who experiences brokenness in their sexuality, whether that's in same-sex attraction or unhealthy heterosexual desires, there is grace for you. And this is why it's so damaging and so harmful to say that we're incomplete without marriage, especially in the church. When the church treats marriage as the apex of Christian experience in life, we do enormous amounts of damage both to people and to marriage. It's not that we're incomplete without marriage. We are incomplete without Christ. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we stand on. So if you experience same-sex attraction and you might be feeling ashamed and confused about this, you need to know that there is so much grace for you in Jesus Christ. And if you would be willing, I would love to grab a coffee with you and talk with you more about that, walk that journey with you. If you know someone who is same-sex attracted and you're looking for some advice, let's catch up. Let's talk about that. If you're looking for some good literature on the topic, I've got some books behind me here. One is written by this guy I mentioned before, Sam Albury. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? It's quite a warm but quite clinical short book looking at uh, all the topics in the Bible, all the times that the Bible mentions uh, this brokenness in sexuality. Another book is written by a young guy named Dave Bennett. He's an Australian guy, actually. Uh, he was a, a, a gay activist and then found Christ and is now uh, living the life of committed celibacy. He's now um, teach, uh, yeah, studying over at Oxford. He wrote a book called The War of Loves. And so if uh, Sam Albury's book is kind of like a bit of a textbook, uh, David Bennett's is a bit like a, a romance movie. <laughs> it's, quite, it's really emotive. It's, you, you read it and I, I had me in tears. It was, it was quite beautiful. There's also another book called uh, Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. Um, that book is on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, uh, but I do, get, I do mean to get around to reading that. So if you're looking for some books that could help you guide that, that's a good place to start. First thing about marriage, it's between male and female. The second thing that we learn here from about marriage is that marriage is a covenant. Quoting Genesis 2, Jesus says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. One of the things that we see so often in our culture is the reason why people get married is because they believe that marriage will complete them and bring them forever happiness. And it's true that marriage is a good gift from God, but the problem arises when we elevate marriage to something higher than what it was meant to be, what it's designed to be. When we do that, we're expecting that that other person is going to satisfy our eternal desires and our eternal, eternal needs. But the language that the Bible uses here challenges that with the words to hold fast. It's very strong language and it means to adhere to something or, or someone in the strongest and most concrete way possible. Essentially, marriage should be understood not as a contract, but as a covenant. In a contract, two parties come together to form some kind of agreement. And as soon as one party stops abiding by the terms of the contract, the contract is broken and is no longer binding for the other party. But when a covenant is made, what you are doing is you are saying, in this agreement, I am going to hold up my end of the bargain no matter what. No matter what kind of circumstances we find ourselves in, and no matter what comes against us, I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain. This is why the traditional vows say 
to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. What they're saying is, no matter what we go through or encounter, I'm in. I'm sticking to you. I'm holding fast. This is what makes biblical marriage so much better than marriage by any other standard. If you treat marriage like a contract, your attitude towards it is that you're only going to do your part if your husband or your wife does their part. And if you do that, there's going to be immense pressure on the person that you marry. They'll have to perform and keep you happy at all times. And and if you start to feel unhappy in the relationship, that's not your problem. That becomes their problem then. And so you have permission to leave. And what you're doing is you're building up the relationship on feelings. And the marriage will either fail and you'll separate, or you'll stay together and you'll grow increasingly distant over time. This is why the Bible's vision of what marriage is is just so much more wonderful than anything that the world says about marriage. Biblical marriage is honest about the fact that feelings come and go. And if the marriage is built on feelings, then there's going to be no stability, no comfort, no assurance. The person you marry will always have to maintain some standard. And as soon as they drop the standard, you're out. Biblical marriage takes us deeper than feelings. Because a covenant is not based on feelings. A covenant is based upon a promise without conditions. We've lost a lot of this recently in in Christian weddings. I was at a wedding uh, a little while back where the husband and wife wrote their own vows and said things like, I love you. You make me so happy. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you and travel with you and, and have kids with you and raise kids with you. I can't wait to be poor with you and eat noodles on the floor together. It was really, it was really cute. It wasn't a vow, though. It's a speech. That's a nice speech. But speeches are for the reception. At the ceremony, we're making vows. We're making a covenant with one another before God. This is why, and you can ask Javen about this and Holly, if you uh, wanted to get married one day and you asked me to conduct the ceremony, I'm not going to let you write your own vows. I love you, but I'm not going to let you write your own vows. You can ask me about that a little bit later if you want to flesh that out a bit more. The fact that biblical marriage is covenantal prevents us from making it all about us. Because making those unconditional promises puts the focus not on what that person can do for you, but what you are committing to do for them. Your husband or wife, they will let you down. There'll come many times where they can't make you feel all of the fuzzy feelings. And when they do, that's when the covenant kicks in. That's where you hold each other up. It's certainly a lot harder, but if both people do this, then you're drastically increasing your odds at having a wonderful marriage. The the biblical vision of what marriage is is just so delightful. It's just so wonderful. It's hard work. But when you consider it to be a covenant that we come into and go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be here by your side. I'm going to be with you no matter what. It's wonderful. The third thing we learn about here is that marriage is intimate. Jesus says that when the couple uh, make that covenant together, they are no longer two individuals, but they become one flesh. Now, this is, again, is very strong language, and it's describing something that's very, very profound and very, very beautiful. If holding fast means that the couple are fused together by the covenant, one flesh blurs the line where that fuse was made, and the two become one unit. One flesh means they are becoming something entirely new, an altogether new creation. And this here is the pathway for the greatest intimacy possible. 
You see, when you become one flesh, what you're doing is you're giving someone access to your entire self. Not only to, you're not only giving them access to all the parts of yourself that you're proud of, you're giving access to all the parts that you're not proud of, even the parts that you're ashamed of, and you're trusting that person with it. Therefore, marriage is an activity of profound vulnerability, where you have to trust that person with info about yourself that only you and they will ever know. And that vulnerability is the pathway to profound intimacy. Our world so desperately wants to have intimacy. It's an eternal longing. But if you only present a polished version of yourself, you'll never have intimacy. God has designed marriage to be the place where you open yourself up and you make yourself entirely accessible to the other person. It's like your life is a house and when you get married, what you're doing is you are opening up all the doors to all the rooms and all the cupboards and unlocking everything for that person to come through and see your life. They have access to it all. That's scary, right? That's what marriage is. They're going to see you at your worst in all of your flaws, in all of your failings. And this is experienced firstly on the wedding night when the husband and wife come together to consummate their vows. Whenever a couple gets married, my advice often is don't pack pyjamas for the honeymoon. Not just because that makes it heaps of fun, because it is heaps of fun. But because when you are actually, what you're doing is you're exposing yourself to this other person. You're saying, this is everything I am with all my failings, all my flaws. You can see me completely naked, completely as I am. Not just physically, but my, my moral failings, my character flaws. And you're entrusting yourself to that person. You're saying, I'm not going to hide anything from you. You've seen all of me now. I'm going to trust you with all of me. I'm going to trust you. And by becoming one flesh, what you're doing is you're inviting that person in and they're going to highlight those things in your life more than any other person in your life will. You're going to be exposed and so you're going to have to trust them. And the degree to which you do actually trust and the degree to which you do make yourself vulnerable, it will determine how intimate your relationship will be. Vulnerability and intimacy are two sides of the same coin. And when you can show grace and love, and when it's covenantal, you, you experience what it's like to be fully known and fully loved. It's going to point us towards what Jesus does for us. When Kirsty and I first started dating, um, some circumstances arose where we essentially had to be incredibly honest with one another. We didn't have much of a choice. And we had to trust one another with the deepest part of ourselves that not many, if any, any person knew about us. And although it was incredibly hard, within a fortnight of dating, I knew more about Kirsty than anybody else on earth, and she knew more about me. We had to be fearlessly honest with one another and make ourselves utterly, entirely vulnerable with one another and trust one another with that. And for that reason, within two weeks of dating, I knew that we were going to get married. And six months later, we were engaged, and four months later, we were married, and in two weeks, it'll be 14 years for us. A healthy and strong marriage is where you are both fearlessly honest with each other, and you trust each other. And that's scary, because it means that you're entirely vulnerable to that person. That person now wields so much power in your life. Their words can make or break you. And if either person abuses that power... It's devastating and crushing for both of you. 
But if both people use the power they were given in each other's lives to build each other up, they will cause each other to flourish immensely. This is why the Bible condemns sex outside of marriage, because sex is the physical act of two people coming together to form one flesh. Sex is the act of making yourself totally vulnerable with one another and with another person and trusting them with what they find. But when sex is treated, when the purpose of sex is to, get, is to get satisfaction from another person, then that distorts and twists sex, this beautiful thing, and it leaves us feeling used and abused and discarded. This is why the marital relationship is so powerful. It's so extraordinary. And not like any other relationship on earth. In a marriage where the husband and wife are vulnerable with one another and they trust one another and they treat their power with care and respect and makes for the most beautiful and personal and intimate relationship that you can ever dream of. The final thing we're going to pick up from this passage is that marriage is permanent. Speaking to these Pharisees who were seeking loopholes and easy ways to get out of marriage, Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What he's saying is that marriage is God's doing. He is the one that is joining them together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. We shouldn't be going about trying to easily separate those two people. Can you feel the weight of that? Can you see the glory that's in marriage? Can you see that there's incredible weight? Like when we come to be married, we, it shouldn't be something we rush into. We should come to marriage in fear and trembling for the Lord, in great joy as well in what he's given us. This is why it's so heartbreaking when our culture uses marriage as nothing more than a way to satisfy our own desires. Marriage is so much heavier than that. There is so much glory in marriage. And we act foolishly if we try to make it into something different. That's why it breaks my heart when there's TV shows that want to use marriage for our entertainment. And I'm, uh, I'm going to get some of you offside by this. But I can't stand shows like Married at First Sight or The Bachelor or anything like that, which basically want to just go, hey, let's, let's just reduce this down to nothing and make fun of these people. It's devastating. Can you see that the way the Bible talks about marriage is, is not only different to the way that the world treats marriage, it's actually just far better off. It's far better than any other definition of marriage. It's perhaps one of the most glorious gifts that God has given us. Can you see that if we take what God has given us and change the rules, we'll ruin it. But if we receive it, it's going to be wonderful for us. It's going to be a wonderful blessing for us. It's going to cause us to flourish. So let's get practical as we finish up here this morning. Here are two questions to ask that can strengthen your marriage. The first question is about the covenant. Here's a question to ask yourself. Does my spouse have to meet my conditions before I give him or her more of my love? Does my spouse have to meet my conditions before I give him or her more of my love? And then if you're really brave, ask your spouse, do you feel that I have put conditions on my love for you? It's a good conversation to have. The second question is about intimacy. Ask yourself, do I trust him or her with the parts of me that I'm ashamed of? Then again, if you're very, very brave, ask your spouse, do you feel that I trust you with all of me? Here's the thing. 
Every single one of us needs to grow in these areas. But the only way that we can really grow and strengthen our marriages is if we go to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I spent a lot of time this morning talking about what we need to be doing for our marriages to be strengthened. But underneath all of that, the only way that these things can actually be done to the degree that is required of us is if we go to the gospel itself. And that's because all of these things that God has asked us to do in marriage, he has already done for us first in Jesus Christ. Everything that God asks us to do in marriage, he has done for us first in Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's infinite deposit of grace in our lives that will keep on giving throughout all our years. And if we trust in the gospel, if we rely on the gospel, and if we go to the gospel for strength in our marriage, we'll have all the fuel, all the ammunition, and all the motivation to grow in these things. So I've said that marriage is a covenant. In Luke 22, we're told that Jesus made a new covenant in his blood for you and I. He died for us before we put our faith in him. He died our death in our place in order to give us his life. Jesus upholds his end of the deal. And by giving us his life, Jesus upholds our end of the deal as well. And the more that we understand what making that covenant costs Jesus, that it costs him his blood, it costs him his life, the more willing we'll be to bear the weight of the covenant in marriage. I've said that marriage is intimate. The Bible teaches us, that, teaches us that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. In Romans, we're told that while we were weak and still in our sin, Christ died for us. He is more aware of the extent of your greatest flaws and failures than you and I will ever be, and he still died for us. Jesus isn't waiting for us to become a better version of ourselves to save us. He saved us as we are. And how is this a vulnerability? Naked, abandoned, nailed to a cross so that we might have him, that we might know him, that we might know God personally, intimately, relationally, in ways that we don't know anybody else. I've also said that marriage is permanent. The Bible teaches us that God will never leave us or forsake us. The God who started his work in us will one day complete that work. Everything that God has commanded of us in marriage, he has already given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. So let's go to the gospel. Let's go to the son. Let's, see, let's look upon the cross. Let's look at what Jesus has done for us and say, yeah, that was actually for me. And, and in the cross, in the gospel, we find everything we need to turn around and love our spouse, to love our husband, to love our wife, to serve them, to uphold the covenant, to be committed to them to be vulnerable with them, and to stick at it no matter what. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.